All right, guys, we want to bring up another sponsor of ours. It is Kelsey Picker Realtor with Keller Williams Coastal Area Partners. And if you need to buy or sell property anywhere in the United States, go to kelseypicker.kw.com. And her information will be at the bottom of that page or reach out to us at any of our social media pages or our email. And we will be happy to put you in touch. <laughs> Who's that coming down the track? Who's that coming down the track? It's a mean machine and red and black. It's a mean machine and red and black. What's up, y'all? This is John and Mike, back for another episode of the Nothing Finer podcast. On this episode, we have, I'll let you say his name. Jim Brandstatter, uh, former voice of Michigan football and uh, uh, with the Lions for a number of years as well, uh, coming on to talk to us, so. Yeah, we're, we're super excited about that, but before we get into it, how was your weekend and what are you drinking? Uh, weekend was good. We uh, we last minute, like Saturday night, we decided to uh, take the kids and my in-laws with us to uh, Orlando. We're going to uh, go to SeaWorld and uh, I, I think Aquatica is the other one we're going to. I don't think Discovery Co. was was part of the, the ticket mm. package special they had going on. So uh, we're going to hit that stuff up. But yeah, like super last minute. So we kind of you know packed up real quick and came and actually got here today. Um, I'm in the Iron Man room right now. Uh, I'm trying to hide out from everybody uh, for for a little bit here, but uh, as far as what I'm drinking, just water. I, I didn't I didn't bring anything uh, with us because I honestly forgot to bring my Southern Comfort with us. So, uh, I mean that's that's a straight baller move. Just oh hey, it's Saturday night. Let's go to SeaWorld on Monday. <laughs> and it's and honestly, at first it was going to be Disney, and then we looked at the price tag for it and uh yeah no that wasn't going to be a that could not be a spur of the moment thing for us so we're balling on a budget but you know it's 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 nice to be able to actually you know be able to do something like this on a whim we're not quite on that disney money quite yet but maybe at some point yeah maybe i don't know i i probably will not be for a long time that's because i love to spend my money on dumb things that's the problem is that I mean, you know, you know something dumb that I spend my money on? I spend a uh, stupid amount on my uh, latest uh, tattoo I have on my leg. Five letters. How about them fucking dogs? Spare That's worth it. Just oh, yeah. No, I'm proud of it. I wanted to get the, uh, you know, fuck them motherfuckers on the other one. But um, the, the how about them fucking dogs one was more than I had anticipated spending. And again, that's my fault for not actually planning it out. We were just walking by the tattoo shop and just saw them just outside, you know, chain smoking. Like, hey, well, we can just walk in there. So my fault, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy with it. I'll, I'll get the other one filled in probably before school starts at some point. But uh, yeah, how about no, you? That's, how, that's, my, that's my problem is that when I get money, I'm like, mm, I have some skin without ink currently on it. We should <laughs> fix that. It, I, I end up usually besides for this one, because like, even like the idea of getting that tattoo didn't last. A, I probably thought about it for like a two weeks or so before that. I just kind of threw it out there and then ended up doing it. But usually I think about it for way too long and then end up getting something a little bit different when I actually sit down and actually go to the shop. So 
uh, at some point I'll get the rest of this right leg filled out and then to my elbows and that'll be, I would think I would be done, but never say never. With all of my brain injuries, if I think about it for too long, I forget. So <laughs> I just thought, let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. <laughs> no, man. Um, so this weekend I found out that I had Lyme disease uh, for about a month and got, got real. Yeah. So like all those health problems I've been talking about turned out to be Lyme disease on Friday, like half of my face went numb for about an hour and Bell's palsy is actually something you can get if you don't treat Lyme disease. Um, so I finally broke down and went to a real doctor on Saturday and they were like, yeah, dude, probably should have came and saw us like two weeks ago. <laughs> eh, I'm alive. Is what it is. Yeah, rub, but, rub some dirt on it. but the good news, I can finally walk and you know move around use my hands all that kind of stuff but with all the powerful medicine they have me on i cannot drink alcohol with it so i am not drinking for at least a few more days because i would prefer to be able to move both sides of my face yolo right come on now no don't do that yeah yes 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 to yolo no to choosing to not move the other side of my face. Oh, no, I want your face to work. <laughs> but yeah, it'd be real hard to have a podcast and talk like this because I can't move my left side of my face. If you ever wondered what it was like to listen to a podcast with someone that sounded like they're having a stroke, that's <laughs> we can make it work. We can make it happen. I was only a few days from it. You know, it was either it was either ended or make everyone's ears hurt even more. <laughs> no, man, but I'm I'm excited about uh I'm excited about getting Jim here or on here in a minute and uh and talking to him about all this kind of stuff. But we are going to cut to the interview now. All right, y'all. Uh, we now welcome on a very special guest. Uh, he was a big part of my childhood in getting me to love football. Uh, he was on the radio call for the uh, Detroit Lions and Michigan football for many, many years. A uh, member of multiple Hall of Fames, the Michigan Sports Hall of Fame, the uh, Gridiron Greats Hall of Fame, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame, just to name a few. Uh, he was also an unbelievable, uh, had also, sorry, also had an unbelievable playing career at Michigan from 1969 to 71. He won two Big Ten championships, played in two Rose Bowls. It was on all and was an all Big Ten offensive tackle his senior season. Uh, he is also the author of the new audiobook Voices of Michigan Stadium, University of Michigan football history told by the legends who made it. Please welcome on Jim Branstetter. Uh Jim, how's it going? Great. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Very nice introduction. So uh, we'll kind of just, you know, get right into it. We kind of you know talked a little bit before we, uh, we started uh, recording here, but. Uh, I'm a, I'm a social studies, social studies teacher by trade. I'm actually moving into PE next year, but I was going to say you were uh, a social studies teacher. You got a sweet Still, still, I mean, still love history and all that. And, uh, obviously love athletics as well. That's why, you know, we're here today, but, um, uh, I grew up, I'm a huge Michigan fan, so I'm excited to give your audiobook a listen, uh, this summer, but, uh, what made you want to write about the storied, uh, storied history of Michigan football? Well, I, I appreciate you talking about being a historian because that's, that's what this is about. Um, 25 years ago, I was asked to write a book called Tales from Michigan Stadium. So I said I would. I never thought I'd be an author. I mean, you know, when I was in high school, my little 
seen your picture underneath it said uh voted first to be indicted you know <laughs> not, the first, <laughs> not the first to be an author but but i was asked to write a book and i thought you know that's something i would like to do uh, i've mm-hmm. i've written before people say i can do it so i'm gonna give it a shot so i did but in order to get the proper quotes uh, i taped all these great voices back 20 25 years ago so that i could quote them properly and i wrote two books tales from michigan stadium volumes one and two so I get to 20, 17, 18, 19, whatever it is, and I'm 21, actually, and I'm thinking about retiring, and I'm going, I've got all this material that I have uh, interviewed these people on tape. How can I repurpose that? Mm-hmm. And I thought about how technology has changed, and really, I can digitize some of these interviews, and I have a treasure trove of what I would call solid gold audio that a lot of people don't have around the country from these programs. Like, for instance, I had the guy that scored the first touchdown ever at Michigan Stadium in 1927, running down the field with Benny Oosterbahn. Tell me that story. He was 94 years old when I interviewed him, but it's clear as a bell. He's very lucid and he can tell me the whole story. I have people who remember Fielding H. Yost who actually interacted with Fielding H. Yost, uh, Ron Kramer, Ron Johnson, uh, Forrest Evashevsky. These are some of the great names of Michigan's past for, for actually college football's great legends of the past. And how can I repurpose those and use those and utilize them to kind of tell the story of college football, which happens to be Michigan's story? I'm sure at Georgia, if you had some an interview with Vince Dooley, you know, and, and talked about some of the great games of his past. I'm sure somewhere there's some of that stuff. Well, I had it in my hands, but for Michigan, I had Bo Schembechler talking about controversial plays, the 10-10 tie, when they yeah. decided to vote and send Notre Dame or Ohio State to the Rose Bowl instead of Michigan because of Danny Franklin's broken arm. In Michigan, that's 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 a huge story. That's something that will – that's a day that will live in infamy. Uh yeah. But I've got Bo talking about that. So I was able to uh, digitize these recordings and I put a package together uh, of those voices. Desmond Howard, why did you make the pose in the end zone against Ohio State? Um, Steve Everett breaking his jaw against Notre Dame and literally spitting out blood on the field and then trying to come back two weeks later against Iowa and playing. I've got Ron Johnson talking about scoring five touchdowns and 347 yards against Wisconsin in 1968. So these things need to be remembered. And and this is long-winded, but as a historian, I'll I'll finish with this. I was at a number of events promoting the book last fall, and I would mention names like Ron Kramer, Tom Harmon, Forrest Dabaszewski, Ron Johnson, George Huey, some of these great names from the past, Wizard White. And I would say, how many of you remember the name? And a lot of people didn't put their hands up. And I went, really? oh, my God. Oh. That, I have become this accidental historian now of Michigan football in the sense that I want people to understand these names are not just names on a building. They were people who are the foundation of Michigan football. Why do we love it so? Because of the tradition. The tradition is the people. 
And, and I've got those people on tape and I want to let them reconnect with those people with their own voices. And I think hopefully I'll rekindle the interest in the history and the tradition of Michigan football. To answer your question in a long way, that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, I mean, that's that's incredible, like especially like I talked about, you know, being a social studies teacher before uh, using you being able to use like primary documents and sources and things like that really like bring history to life. And I, that's something that makes uh, your audiobook unique. So I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, to giving that a listen and really getting into it, because even of the, the guys that you named, uh, I would maybe 50, 60 percent like I, I have a, a, a good understanding of, but there's definitely room to, you know, to learn. Right. Well, I, I, I think you'll enjoy it from the standpoint of the fact that there's things in there. He goes, I never knew that. And how many times have you been in a, uh, a bar or someplace where they uh, serve adult beverages and you're sitting next to them and say, you wonder what he said during that play? You know, what did he say during, well, I've got that. Like, what did Herschel Walker say in the huddle before he did that play in Georgia for some famous moment in Georgia football history? Well, wouldn't it be great if you had Herschel actually telling you the story of what he said to the quarterback? Yeah. Like, Anthony Carter, like against Indiana in 1979, Anthony Carter's a freshman, game's tied, Z, uh, there's seven seconds left, and Anthony as a freshman walks into the huddle, and John Wangler's the quarterback, and Anthony as freshman says to Wangs, throw me the ball. And yes. he throws him the ball, and he scores with no time left, one of the most iconic touchdowns in Michigan football history. And how many times have you sat there and go, did he really say that? Well, I've got Bo Wangs telling me that that's exactly what he said in their own words. So those are the kinds of things that I think make it special and bring that game that you remember, you know, way back in your years, but bring it home to roost when that actual person tells you the story of that event. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to. It. I'm, I'm going to get this like right after, right after we get off the call. I, I, I think you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of great history in it. And I think you'll enjoy it. Awesome. Um, so you got you're, me interested, uh, and I'm I'm obviously not a Michigan fan, so I'm probably getting it as well because I love well, hearing good. the passion about people telling stories. Well, you know, there, there's some great stories about that, but it's just one of those things where if, if you are a big Georgia fan and you guys you could try to find some old tape of, of these guys telling their stories and it's, it's available now. I mean, technology wise, you can get stuff to redigitize some of this stuff to make it sound good. You can actually do a history book, but with their own words and in yeah, their own that's voices. Awesome. And that's what makes it special. It's like history coming. Like to history coming to oh, definitely. Um, so you were you were on uh, amongst the first teams that uh, legendary Michigan coach Bo Schembechler led. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to play for uh, Coach Schembechler? It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> he was the most he was the most demanding guy. I mean, never. And Deardorff and I, Dan, NFL Hall of Famer, will tell you the same thing. We worked together in the last years on the broadcast, but Dan, we 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 all hated it. He put us through double sessions and practices uh, that we couldn't believe physically and mentally. We, we were all that far from being exhausted and, and it was just constant. And, and, and the idea was at the time, Woody Hayes had national championship teams and outstanding football teams. And in order to win the big 10 championship, which was Bo's goal, 
you had to beat Ohio State. So he installed Ohio State's offense. He installed Ohio State's defense. And by God, he was determined that we were going to play it better than they did. And having been an assistant coach for Woody, he knew how to do it. And literally, the the guys on that 69, 70, and 71 team, those first three years, he didn't recruit any of us. Bump Elliott had recruited us all. But we stayed on that team, and we stayed through his craziness. And in 1969, we upset Ohio State 24-12, one of the greatest upsets in football history. Sports Illustrated said that 1969 Ohio State team was the best team ever assembled and could probably beat a few NFL teams. Well, they came into Ann Arbor and we beat them 24-12. We went to the Rose Bowl as Big Ten champions and we're sitting there in that locker room and we're thinking back on all of this horror that we went through to get there. And we all looked at each other and went, you know, maybe the guy knows what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's when we, we began to really truly understand what it took to get to the top of the mountain and what it took to stay there. He took us there kicking and screaming, but that's what it took. And uh, we all really appreciated him. I mean, like I said, we hated him when he, we played for him and, and many of us became some of his best friends after we graduated. Mm-hmm. You can definitely see that like the parallel, even with uh, obviously this is a Georgia, you know, centric podcast, but, some of what you're talking about with Coach Schembechler being like what we hear about going on in practices at uh, UGA in Athens with like, you know, Bloody Tuesday and, and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, the, the stuff that it takes to get to that point, to that championship level football. Um, I mean, you can go back and look, you know, Bo, Woody, you know, going like Nick Saban and, you know, Kirby, you know, at this point winning two back, to, you know, back to back championships. It is not, they know what it takes to get there. It's not going to be fun, but, you know, you have a chance to live, you know, live on forever and, like, accomplish all this stuff. So, like, that's – you know, it, it takes a special type of person to get to to uh, to get to that point. You're exactly right. And Fritz Chrysler was a great coach at Michigan. And a lot of the guys I interviewed and talked about Fritz said the same kind of thing. And those – all these great names that over the past – I mean, I'm sure that Dooley was that way, um, Kirby Smart's that way, Saban, uh, Schembechler, Hayes. Uh, all these great coaches, John McKay, probably at Southern California. Uh, I mean, Rockney back in the day, but they yeah. said about Chrysler, he made you better than you thought you could be. He made you play better than you thought you could play. And, and, and that's what it takes. And you take great athletes and great players and you push them to that level to be better than they think they can be. You're going to wind up winning championships. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. Um, so with, uh, I, mean, I, I mentioned this in here, Ohio State was always a rival, a big, you know, big rival, our tribal with Michigan, but is there anything specific that you can point to that made Michigan, Ohio State, one of, not one of, but the greatest rivalry in all sports? Yeah, they hate us and we hate them. I mean, simple as that. I mean, they don't like us. I mean, they don't like us. They, they don't, they don't like the cars we drive. I mean, yeah. they don't like the roads we drive on. They don't like the state line. Uh, they just, mm-hmm. they, they don't like us period. And, we feel very similar about them. And, you know, you can go back through the ages and the fact that we beat them in the snowball in the 1950s when they said you should have never beaten us then, but we did. So, you know, give it a rest. Yeah. And, and that and was a 9-3 game. I looked back I was, I was, when I was kind yeah. of, you know, going back and looking at stuff. It was incredible. They, they were able to kick four different field goals in that game. 
Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah exactly. well, then that's the thing. There were no touchdowns scored, and uh, Michigan blocked punts. That's the only reason. They had 20, they had like 40 some punts in that game. There was like 10 inches of snow on the ground. Uh, they say that people were building bonfires in the stands to stay warm. But, but, but that's, but that's all part of, again, the history and the tradition, the kind of romance of the rivalry. But then, of course, you get Woody a beating on Michigan. And in 1968, saying when he's ahead 50 to 14, I'm going to go for two. And saying after the game, whether it's true or not, and I've heard different versions, when asked why he went for two at the end of the game after scoring a touchdown, he says, because I couldn't go for three. So that adds to the mystique. Then the next year, Woody Hayes comes to Ann Arbor with the greatest team ever assembled, and we upset him. And that starts the 10-year war. And that's been going on now till last year, last two years. Ohio State dominates. Ryan Day, Urban Meyer. Michigan's a second-class citizen. They're horrible. Then Ohio State shows up in 21, and we smoke them. And then we go down there last year, and we smoke them. And all of a sudden, Ohio State's now feeling the pressure. So it's that ongoing, it's like sand. It's just like grinding on everybody. And it's that, that's what makes it a rivalry. And then, and, and two great traditions and two great teams, always, every year. It's rare that one team is down and the other isn't. Yeah, that that's that's one thing I always try to explain to people too. Um, and and John can attest to this. And like when we were you know talking to each other and like in group chats and stuff like that, uh, just the anytime that I can zing Ohio for any reason at all, <laughs> like I'm gonna I'm gonna jump on that right away because that away that away, Michael. Yeah, I, 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 and even my kids at this, my kids at this point. My, I mean, my daughter's only five months old at this point, but I have a, a few other boys as well. I mean, they know it already. Like they, they see Ohio and they just start getting mad and just, just start talking all this trash and everything. And I, and I couldn't be prouder. <laughs> so, well, that, that, um, that, you know, that's it. I mean, people grow up with that stuff, you know, in, in Michigan, I mean, you know, and in Ohio, it's the same thing. They, yep. they give, they give actual diapers. They sell them, you know, we're on the, the, the fanny or the bottom of the diaper is a block M. So that's where the baby does its business. That's what they sell in Ohio. I mean, it's stupid. It's crazy, right? But that's what they do. They buy this stuff. Yeah. I will say, even as someone who's been a Georgia fan my entire life, I've always hated Ohio State and Ohio State fans. They're the worst. Literally the worst fans in college football. They're unbearable. They, they you know what? You, uh, you sh- I'll tell you what. It's funny. You should wear a Michigan maize and blue and go to Ohio State sometime. You think they're yeah. bad with Georgia? You wear amazing blue and walk into the horseshoe. You literally might have trouble getting out of there alive. Yeah, that's what you I know, was it's telling funny. Uh, Oh, you can go ahead, John. So last year, I actually went to a game at the Swamp because I got free tickets. I was like, Georgia and Florida always play at a neutral site. I'm going to go. It's like a three-hour drive. I expected to have problems. But none of the fans said a word negative to us until we were leaving the stadium. It's it's it's, it's weird how it, I, I'll give you an example of that. And I, again, this is a family show, but this is what it's like in Columbus. We were down at the we I traveled with the team many years, and so I'm on the bus, and the bus leaves, and you leave right from Ohio Stadium, you drive out close, and that's where all the people are parked. And as we leave, either win or lose, 
there's always somebody standing on the curb. They're with their, they got their scarlet and gray stuff on and their Ohio State Brutus the Buckeye hats. And they're usually holding hands with two nine or 10 year old kids on either side. And as the bus goes by, every one of them, mom, dad, and the two kids are flipping the buses, the bird. <laughs> and that's the God's truth. I'm, I'm, I'm not lying. And that's kind of a typical uh, Ohio State response in Columbus. They learn when they're eight and nine years old. Uh, that middle finger is reserved for Michigan. <laughs> that's yeah, a that's... game that I have to make it to at some point. That is definitely on my bucket list of, of college football games. Well, do, do, do make it and do me a favor. Don't wear your Georgia gear, but wear something scarlet. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Well I, then, well then, take a police escort. <laughs> oh no! If I came to a game, I'd go to Ann Arbor. Oh, there you go. You're cool in Ann yeah. Arbor. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't have, have any been, desire have to. Been, I don't have any else? desire to fund the economy of Columbus, Ohio, in any good, way. Good shape for or you. Form. Good for you. you. Have you ever never been to the big house? I have never been. I've never been to the state of Michigan at all. Really? You're missing, you're missing out. You are missing out. Yeah, we um, my my we've had season tickets to my family forever. My my aunt had it uh, for a number of years, and she passed it on to my uh, my brother. So he goes to you know as many home games as he can go to, and we went to I don't know, dozens of of games uh, growing up. So I haven't been I haven't been to Michigan Stadium since oh, shoot probably twenty ten. So like right when Rich Rod really kind of started uh, started there. Um, so it's been a, it's been a while since I've been, but like that's definitely something that I need to get to. Yeah, they've done it. They've done a great job with the suites on either side, and it kind of makes it louder. I mean, I, you know, because it, it it can get loud, but it, it kind of holds the sound in a little bit, where it used to just kind of all go out on the top. And John, I think you'd love it because it's the most interesting stadium. When you walk up there, you go, "How can they put a hundred thousand people here?" It doesn't look like that thing, right? Then you walk up this little hill, and you walk in, and you're at row seventy-five. Yeah. And then down below you are 76 rows and above you, there's only about 20 rows. And you realize wow. Bob Euford, the great Michigan football announcer, called it the hole that Yost dug, <laughs> Annam carpeted, and Shem Beckler filled up every Saturday afternoon in the fall. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's definitely it should be on everybody's bucket list, uh, especially those of you guys that have not been uh, been able to go yet. It's 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 awe inspiring. It really is. Yes, it is. Um, all right, it, so it's always been on my bucket list. I just haven't been able to make it happen yet. Well, let us know when you decide you're going to do that. We'll figure something out. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm trying to get Mike to come up there with me, even if it's just the two of us and we leave the families home. <laughs> Don't threaten me with you. That'd be a good buddy. With you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, Ann Arbor is such a fun college town. I mean, there's a lot of parallels that you can make between Athens and, uh, and Ann Arbor uh, for sure. Ann Arbor's a little bit more spread out, but I mean, two of the best college towns in the country. It's expensive now these days too. Oh, yeah. Main, Street, Main Street has uh, got in the old days. You know, when I was going to school, we used to get down to Main Street and you could get a hamburger and you know beer and stuff like that. Now they're sitting out on uh, sidewalk cafes, drinking yeah. cappuccinos. Oh. <laughs> It's a little bit different vibe at Athens even today, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, how kind of going, you know, 
back to like one of the big things that growing up a Michigan fan was uh, the big emphasis is always on the Rose Bowl. I mean, with, especially with Bo and then going up, you know, through today, like, right. it's always an emphasis like get to the Rose Bowl. Like that's, you know, one of the biggest goals that you have each year. But how incredible was it to play in the Rose Bowl? Like I said earlier, you played you played in a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, when Georgia played against Oklahoma a few years ago, um, it meant even more to me than the average Georgia fan, just because, again, the importance that Michigan had always put on that game. But I was like to play in that game itself. It, it's a dream come true. I mean, again, and, and you got to look at the times, look at it from a historical perspective. When I was recruited and went to the University of Michigan, there were two things that you wanted to do. You wanted to play college football. You wanted to win a championship and you wanted to play in the Rose Bowl. Yeah. For, for what, there were 10 schools in the Big Ten. So for the entire Rust Belt, literally, the only goal from, you know, Pennsylvania west to Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and south to southern Illinois, north to Michigan, that whole square yard, the only goal in collegiate football was to win and play in the granddaddy of them all. Yeah. So, so when you're a kid growing up, and you get there, it's like, oh, my God. Not only did you win the Big Ten Championship, which is huge, you know, beating Ohio State and riding atop one of the best conferences in the country, clearly one of the most difficult conferences to play football in. But then the icing on the cake. It was the game on New Year's Day that didn't have anybody playing against it. It was all by itself. It was the crown jewel. So that historically – is what the Rose Bowl was. So as a high school senior playing at Michigan, getting there as a sophomore and playing in the Rose Bowl, it doesn't get any better than that. And I don't know, I don't know how to describe it other than the fact that it is truly for a high school football player, for a collegiate football player, back in that day, it was a dream come true. And we've lost that a little bit. And then now it's about playing in a national championship. I mean, Let's face it, there were days back in the SEC when the, the Orange Bowl was was the big one. You know, they they had their thing too, where it was they, they had kids grow up in the southeast. I want to play in the Orange Bowl, you know, or I want to play in the Cotton Bowl. There was such great history there. The four bowls were sugar, orange, cotton, and rose. Now there's 400 of them. You can play in the uh, the Bahamas uh, Conk Fritter Bowl, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's I, I lost, no, I know, but it's lost some of its thing. But back to your question, what was it like? It was a dream come true. And I, 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 I look back on those days. I am glad. I truly am glad uh, I was from that era that I had that goal, that thing that, uh, that I was able to grab onto and, and experience. Was it, I don't want to say, was it like better, not better or worse, but like, was the feeling the same calling those games on the Michigan radio call? Yep. Uh, yeah. You're calling the Rose Bowl. You're, you're at a historic venue, you know, you're, you're, it just, you felt it's big. It's, it's a place bigger than you. It's a place bigger than the 100,000 people that are there. It's, 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 it's a, it's a moment in time. It's a place in time. So as an announcer, you know, I mean, you think back to Keith Jackson calling all these Rose Bowl games, you know, you think back to, you know, the Tom Harmon's playing in the Rose Bowl and the 
great games, uh, the Wisconsin and the Vander Collins and the Anthony Davises and the Southern Cows and the Gary Beebens and the UCLA's and all the guys from the Big Ten, Ohio State, Jack uh, Tatum. They, it, it has this, this whole history of itself that you you become a part of that. I mean, you you feel like I'm a part of this this Rose Bowl tradition now. And um, I think it goes to what you were talking about. As you grew up playing in the Rose Bowl, that's a big deal. Well, I played and you experienced it by just how you talked about it. It was a big game for you and you didn't even play the game. Imagine what it was yeah. for the guy that played it. And to become part of that history, I mean, that's, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? No, I mean, I go back and I mean, even games that Michigan or Georgia weren't in the Rose Bowl, like I'll go back and watch those games anytime, yeah. even whether it's YouTube or like on, you know, ESPN or, or something, if they're showing a game at the Rose Bowl, even like the uh, Ohio State and Utah game from uh, two years ago, like I will sit there and watch it from, you know, whistle to whistle because it's the Rose Bowl. Like, I it's the, that's exactly. Well, and, and there's no other venue like that ever. I mean, yeah. it's you've got the San Gabriel Mountains around it, you know, and they take that picture from above it's just there's no other place like it you give me the where's the the cotton bowl's been at three different places you know yeah. the orange bowl's not the orange bowl anymore it's at hard rock okay the sugar bowl's not at tulane stadium it's at it's at the uh it's at the um the metrodome or the whatever used to be mercedes-benz bowl dome or yeah. whatever super dome these are the palace bowl. or something now yeah yeah whatever it is but the rose bowl's still the rose bowl mm-hmm that 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 connection with time and history adds to its mystique, and I I just love it, and I hope they never get rid of that building. I hope you know they refurbish it and do all the right things, but boy, leave it in that place, leave it in that setting, because on January first, as a collegiate football fan, I don't think there's any better opening to a television broadcast than that blip shot coming over the mountains. Clouds underneath you a little bit, and the Rose Bowl with those two end zones painted with the two teams. Yeah. I'm sorry, you can uh, roll me over on that one. That's where it's at. That's where it's at. Yeah, it's college football heaven. I can't imagine a better venue, uh, like off campus. Obviously, like UCLA plays there and everything, but I can't imagine a better venue to see a football game. I really can't. Well, other than Michigan Stadium, I can't either. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And Sanford, too. Sanford, Sanford does not get, uh, in, you know, down there in Athens, does not get the credit it deserves. But, again, the Rose Bowl is special. And so, uh, obviously, the big house as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. it's the history and the, they, they, they've, they've changed and, you know, gotten refurbished and, you know, fixed up. But, but in, in essence, they're the same stadium that has been there for, you know, over almost 100 years now. And mm-hmm. that – brings i think some real tradition and history and uh, i don't know, we use this word gravitas to that yeah. site that venue it makes it a little different absolutely all right um all right so we're going to get into some more uh like georgia kind of related stuff as well as with uh, michigan too and i kind of moved on to the future a little bit here but uh georgia's obviously been on a tear as of late so you know like we talked about winning the last two college football playoff yeah. national championships um, I do think Michigan today, and like I always get some shit for it <laughs> uh, when I'm talking to other people, especially in the South, but I, I do think Michigan is Georgia's greatest threat uh, to pretty much un- not unprecedented because 1930s Minnesota did it, but almost an unheard of three-peat, which again, it's been almost 100 years since this happened, since uh, 1930s Minnesota. But 
Um, kind of one more kind of throwback question a little bit. Uh, throwing it back to Michigan's magical 1997 year. Um, sorry. Um, at uh, at what point do you, did you realize that Michigan had a chance at winning its first national championship since 1948? <laughs> it was like the 10th game of the season. They were at Penn State. No, yeah. broadcasting the games, and they struggled to beat Iowa at home a little bit, and, and they were unbeaten and all that. But And we, we'd been through that before. I've been through that with Michigan teams. I did 47 years of their games, okay? So yeah, I've been around since 69 playing and broadcasting since uh, 80. 79, actually. So we've had these runs. We go to State College, Pennsylvania, play the number one team in the country, I think, at the time. We're one, we're two, they're one. They got uh, Kerry Collins, they got uh, LeVar Arrington, they loaded, and we're playing them in their place. And I said, this is, we're going to find out about us today. Mm-hmm. I mean, how good you are. We're good enough. We're, 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 we're a great team. We're going to only lose one maybe game at all. And then whoever we go to the bowl game, we're going to be favored. So, but to get to that elite spot where you're, you're, you're national champions, that's different. And, and so now let's find out. The opening play, Glenn Steele breaks through. And I mean, he absolutely plants Terry Collins. I mean, plants him. And at that point, everybody at State College in the stadium, you can almost hear him go, huh? then a little bit later they throw a pass to their tight end and we have a safety by the name of Dadrian Taylor and I'm broadcasting the game and Dadrian Taylor like he shot out of a cannon comes up and hits this tight end with the football and it's one of the most violent collisions I've ever seen in football and I've seen him in the NFL this thing through the tight end about four yards out of bounds backwards. Daydream was about four yards out of bounds backwards. And the crowd in behind them, which was the Penn State bench, all gasped. And the (laughs) Penn State players backed up. Normally, when you see a hit like that on the sideline, the players are jumping around, way to go, way to go. And they're patting their guy on the back. Their guys backed up. And I went, oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> that Daydream just sent a message to the student section and their entire bench. Neither of those players, by the way, pardon me for getting all whacked out of shape here on this, but it's true. Neither of those players ever played another down of football. That's how violent that it was. But it set the tone, and Michigan blew them out in yeah. State College. And at that point, at halftime, we're up like 28-3 at halftime. I looked at my play-by-play guy, Frank Beckman, and I said, are we this good? And he looked back at me and went, I think we are. From that point on, we, were, we weren't getting beat. Woodson the next week goes off against Ohio State, beats yeah. them in Ann Arbor. We go out and knock out Brian, Ryan Leaf in the uh, Rose Bowl, and we're unbeaten. And that, that team was as good a team as I've ever seen. Defensively, there wasn't a weakness anywhere. Yeah. Special teams, we could play. Offense, we could run, we could throw, we had tight ends, we could block. We had we had first round draft picks up front. It was just, it was really a well-crafted football team, coached beautifully by Lloyd Carr. Yeah. And so I like I said before, I kind of I, I kind of get some crap for saying this 
from time to time because at at this time I was I was just a kid. Um, so like I didn't have like a, a a good grasp on like what Nebraska was at that time. But I'll 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 just come out and say it now. Like I think that that 1997 Michigan team would have beat Nebraska. At least I felt like that then. I feel like that now. But if if Michigan and Nebraska, those two 1997 teams, were to play in a championship game like we have now, the you know college football national championship or playoff national championship, how do you think that game would have gone? Michigan wins. I mean, I, I you're talking to a Michigan guy. Of course, I'm going to say that. Yeah. But the reality of life is, is that uh, uh, Nebraska. The only reason, I mean, there were four uh, people or four different entities that voted for the national championship that year. Michigan was voted national championship in three of them. Only one entity didn't vote Michigan national champion. And it was because uh, Nebraska beat a Peyton Manning-led team in their in their bowl game. And that's the only reason. Peyton didn't have a good day. They were able to get to him, rush, you know, pressure him. Once you pressure quarterback, you can pressure Tom Brady. You know, he's not going to be as good. And they right. did. But Peyton didn't have the running game that Michigan had. Tennessee, that Peyton didn't have the defense Michigan had. So mm – -hmm. I mean, we, we held Ryan Leith and Washington State in the Rose Bowl, one of the best offenses in the country that year, running a, a wide-open 4-5 receiver offense. We held them to 16 points. Yeah. So our defense would, I think, shut down. Hey, not that David Frost was any great shakes as a quarterback, right? But I think right. we handled David Frost and neutralized whatever he was able to bring to the table. The Michigan defense would have. And our offense would have done enough against their defense to score and win. And there's a reason why Charles Woodson won that that Heisman and not Peyton Manning. Any uh, for any Tennessee fans that are that are <laughs> that are listening well, to this, I, I love to bring that up. Tennessee fans yeah. stopped listening to us right about the time right. we started last year. Yeah, well, hey, <laughs> Tennessee and Peyton's a great court. Don't get me wrong, great college yeah. player. But you name me a, a player that year that Charles he was offensive receiver. He scored touchdowns and he scored big plays as a receiver. He shut down every corner or every great receiver that he played against, and he returned punts and kickoffs. He did everything for that team on all three phases of the game. He was the best yeah. player in college football. Last time I checked, that's what the Heisman voted for. That is the definition of not, it, for sure. Not so much anymore, but it used to be. Yeah, times change, right, John? Yeah. Um. And, and one other thing about that 97 team. So Brian Greasy was a uh, was a walk on. So, you know, the last walk on to win a national championship after Brian Greasy was, of course, Stetson Bennett. So yep. that nice tie in there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brian did a great job that year. You know, he, oh, he was. But Brian wasn't that bad. I mean, every day he's a walk on. But Brian went on and played in the NFL for a number of years. So he couldn't have been that bad. You know, no. so he was a starting quarterback. He uh, he managed that team extremely well. And what Brian did more than anything was he led. Boy, he was yep. – he would not let that team, d d you know, down. I mean, he just when, – when, when they got in that huddle, Brian was calm as a cucumber. He'd look at them straight in the eye and say, man, we're going we're gonna to win. We're going to score here and we're going to win. And it just was – when he said it, they believed it and they did it. That, that He brought us uh, – the intangible things he brought may have been better than the physical things he brought. Yeah, and I kind of point back to that with, uh, you know, going back to Georgia a little bit. Um, at, in the uh, 2021 national championship against Alabama, um, when Stetson had that that call where, you know, he, you know, tried to pass it, they ended up calling it a fumble, and in Alabama recovered it, and then scored like, you know, a few plays after that. Right. It was at, at that moment, like Stetson turned it on and did not look back the next, you know, 16 games, 15 and a half games they played. Um, 
and just he would refuse to let that uh let that define his career and all that. And that and that's that's huge for the rest of the team to see that kind of attitude. I the, the, good point, Mike. Very good. Yeah, I mean that switch flipped, and like it went from you know like even you know if he you know gave uh, John and I truth serum, like we're asking if you know Stetson's gonna should we bench him and put JT Daniels in there at that point, even, you know, halfway through the third quarter. And, you know, after that, I mean, there was no question that. he well, was. Yeah. He, he, I don't know how you could have questioned whether he could be against us in that championship or against the semifinal game down in Florida. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, uh, he was, he was crazy good. Yeah. You know? Well, even amongst, uh, you know, a lot of Georgia fans and, you know, and down here, I mean, th- there was a lot of people that were asking right up until kickoff, like who's going to be starting this game. Like we, you know, we, we thought had you know, thought that Stetson was going to be doing it, but there's a lot of people calling for JT Daniels. I mean, he was a five-star guy. Well, I, remember, uh, yeah. no, I remember preparing for the game as the, as the play-by-play guy. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there looking at tape and I'm going, why is there a controversy? This guy, yeah. all he does is win. All he does is get it to the right people. All he does is, you know, that defense, it's great to have that defense backing you up. Don't get me wrong. But this guy doesn't do anything but the right thing with the football. And I thought they must be nuts that they think somebody else could be better than this kid Bennett. There was a lot of Georgia fans upset when he said he was coming back for the 2022 season. I would say about half of the fan base was mad Stetson came back. Yeah. Not us, but yeah, that definitely. I no. think that might be conservative, really. That's just that. That's just man. Get them some medication because that's crazy. Well, those I think those are the, the fans time. that are still upset that Justin Fields didn't start over Jake Fromm. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, yeah, we yeah, definitely get lost. No, and and I get it because believe me, there are Michigan fans that think every year Michigan should win a national title. It's just not going to happen. But they they believe it every year. I mean, I'm. There were people here that uh, you know probably think JJ McCarthy shouldn't start for Michigan. I, I it, you can't figure them out, but when you see the kind of production and the kind of you know the the intangibles and the the ability to make plays and 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 the hold the kid has on a team, especially at the quarterback position like Stetson Bennett, and you've studied the game a little bit, like like I've watched it, you look at that kid and he's just he just stands out. Yeah, he's not the physically the most imposing guy. Joe Milton is unbelievable from a physical standpoint. Okay. But Stetson Bennett, from a player standpoint, is head and shoulders above Joe Milton. And we had Joe Milton in Ann Arbor. We're we're gonna cut that out and just make some Tennessee fans mad on social media. <laughs> That's all right. I like Joe Milton. Maybe he's great. He's unbelievably talented physically, but no, I think I think he'll do really well in Josh Heupel's system. I, yeah, I did. It's it's it, it, it. Being a quarterback is more than just you know throwing it through a wall, or as Pete Rose said, throw it through a car wash and not getting it wet. It's about accuracy. It's about reading. It's about all those things. It's like I always said, Joe Montana wasn't probably the most physically uh, uh, gifted of quarterbacks that came through the the. The, the ranks, but all he did was get in a system with Bill Walsh and he was a perfect quarterback and became one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time because of that and his ability to do those things that he needed to do. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of, it's a fine mix to get through all of that stuff to make it work. 
And I think Joe, didn't he graduate in two years? I know he got, I thought he got his degree from Michigan. Yeah, Joe had his degree, undergraduate degree from Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. He did really well. He, he, yeah. I think for his first year, he got a red shirt. He was there three years, graduated in three, but it was a sophomore year. It was the COVID year. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He started first Dave McNamara came in and started for him at Rutgers and brought Michigan back against Rutgers uh, on the COVID year. And then the next year, Joe moved, moved on to mm-hmm. Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of what happened, ended up happening with Stetson in that COVID year. He wasn't the guy that started in in uh, in uh, tw- in uh, twenty twenty at all. Like we had uh, Dewan Mathis. He uh, he actually played high school football in, uh, in Romulus, I believe. Um, and and Stetson had to come in there and save it, and then he ended up getting benched later in the year. He got hurt and stuff, but it's, it got a lot of parallels there. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, there we go. All right. So looking back at all the broadcasts that you've been a part of, what which game? stands out the most like what's which game is the most memorable uh to well, you? i guess from a personal perspective uh the 21 ohio state game is is yeah. awful good i was doing the play-by-play dan deardorff and i were do, was we were teammates uh on the 1969-70 teams i backed him up for two years at michigan he was doing color i was doing play-by-play we were involved in the 1969 ups, upset as players and here we were 53 years later broadcasting this great upset of Michigan over Ohio State to win the Big Ten Championship or win the Big Ten East, go to the Big Ten Championship. And uh, the the crowd stormed the field. Uh, It was just a magical, magical day. So from a broadcast perspective, that was was pretty hard to beat. And uh, the other one would have been the national championship game when we beat beat Washington State in the Rose Bowl. We were Frank Beckman who was doing play by play at the time was on top of it. We were both, you know, just, you know, it was like uh, we were both on top of that game. And so those two games, and there were a bunch in between that I loved. Uh, I mean, I'm doing the game against Nebraska in the Fiesta Bowl back in the day. We came back in the second half and won. That was fabulous. The Penn State game I was telling you about earlier was great, but that 21 Michigan Ohio State game uh, was magical. And it was our last game. We were retiring yeah. that year. Uh, that that would have been our last game had we lost. But we had one more to play, and that was down against Georgia. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's that. I can't imagine a better way of ending, you know, your, your final game being called uh, calling in Ann Arbor for that. You know, I don't even necessarily call it an upset. I mean, it was an upset because George uh, because Michigan has struggled for so many years against Ohio State. But the way that that game played out, uh, it couldn't have been any sweeter. No, it, it really couldn't. And the best part about it was there, there was no doubt about it. We beat yeah. them physically. We beat them up. I mean, they were when, – when that game was over, you knew who the better team was by far. There was no yeah. fluky yeah. stuff in there. There wasn't anybody saying, well, if our guy would have done that. No. Your guys got beat. Go home. Go back down I-75. And start crying at Toledo and don't stop till you get to Columbus. <laughs> um, John, was this one yours? Yeah. So what was the process of getting into broadcasting after your playing career? Um, back then in the day, I mean, I, I actually played in the 1972 Rose Bowl, January 1 of 1972. Came back to finish up my school. And in April, I started sending out tapes to 30-some different radio and TV stations around Michigan. 
and only one sent the answer back and asked for an interview. And it was a little uh, TV station in Saginaw, Michigan, Channel 25, the CBSI scanning the Tri-City skies, serving Flint, Saginaw Bay City, also serving Midland. <laughs> so that's, that's the, they. I went up there and I interviewed with Dick Fabian, their news director. He hired me and I was a sports director doing the 6 and the 11 news, you know, like uh, the local newscast up in Saginaw, Michigan. And in the in the back of my mind, in my what I wanted to do as a broadcaster, we all have ideas and thoughts of where you want to go. Doing the six and the eleven news is okay; it's fun and it's it's a job, but it's not what I really wanted to do. I had in the back of my mind, I want to be a play-by-play guy or a be at the event, do the event, and 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 that's where I was shooting. And it took me seventy-two to. Eight about 14 years before I was able to really get to a point where I was able to do that. And then I, I was, I was doing high school football games for a public broadcasting station, the color uh, uh, Friday nights. I, and I'd have to take vacation days off from my other job to do that in broadcasting. And then I got the radio job doing Michigan football. Actually it was a, like a tape replay of Michigan games in 1979. And I was doing the color with a bunch of different guys. And they would tape the games, replay them at midnights on Saturday. So I started, that's how I started to get my play-by-play stuff in. And then a few years later, I got radio. And then the, the Lions called and asked me if I'd do the Lions games. So for 31 years, I did Michigan on Saturday and Lions on Sunday. And that wow. was, uh, you couldn't, for me, it was as perfect a job as I could get. Because that's what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm from, you know, Detroit, or I'm from Michigan. The Lions were my pro team. I played football at Michigan, so they were my college team. To have the ability to be the broadcaster on both of those things, um, I, I pinch myself and think about how fortunate I was to come up with that that uh, dynamic duo uh, in my in my career to make a career out of it. So that's that's how it happened. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm I feel like uh, Lou Gehrig. I'm the luckiest man on the face of the year. How did how did you manage your time between doing both of those at such a high level? Like you said, I mean, you did both of those for a number of years. Was, how segment that? It was crazy. I mean, I, I was I was flying from you know Ann Arbor, especially when when college football started moving to do night games. I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning and flying from Detroit to to Los Angeles, taking a cab to get to a game out there at one o'clock or Seattle or Minneapolis or Dallas, wherever the Lions were the next day. But you just, you do it. You, you, you just make a reservation and you get on a plane and some days you don't get any sleep. The, the biggest thing is, is the preparation I had. I would do, I would segment my week. On Tuesdays was my college day of uh, paperwork. So I would do all my stats. I would do all my two deeps all of my spotting charts, everything for college on Tuesday, okay? On Wednesday, I would do all my pro stuff. So that was all the stats, all the, the spotting sheets and the, and, the, and the two deeps. Get that done on Wednesday, and that was about a six-hour day there. Thursday was my tape day. So I would take the morning until maybe 1 o'clock, and I would watch Michigan, to, or the Michigan opponent. Because I knew Michigan because I was watching them every week. 
And then about one or two o'clock, I'd go and do the Lions and their opponent. And I would take these games, you know, on your DVR or back in the day, TiVo or, or your, your VHS machine. And I would take these games and I'd get the opponent. And then I would spend four or five hours Thursdays doing each one. And then when Michigan played at home, I had Friday to, to catch up on stuff that I didn't get done on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. I tried to take Monday off. Yeah. Because if you if you go seven days a week, you just get you get burnt out. But I did that for 31 years and it worked out okay. And and you really have to compartmentalize yourself because when you get off the plane, you have been worrying about number 81 being some player from Michigan State. And now number 81 is some player from the Minnesota Vikings. So yeah. you gotta kind of quit, you know, you gotta you gotta think fast on your feet but you just kind of like I always told people when I put my foot down in whatever city I was at I started saying this is Lions game these are the players and yesterday's game was kind of over so it was it's just I it's it was great fun and uh it just mental gymnastics but I loved every minute of it if you love the old story if you love your doing what you do you don't work a day in your life and that's that's that was what i was lucky at mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome that's incredible um so it really let's, is. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, there's, only two or, there's only two or three guys in the country doing that gene De- Adair, uh gene deckerhoff did it for tampa and florida state he did yeah that's not that's, close that's not <laughs> yeah, yeah well he he did Tampa and Florida State, uh, uh, and then there was a guy out east, I think, that did it too. He did. Are you Philadelphia? I don't know. There were two or three other guys that did it, but I know Gene pretty well because we, way back in the day, the Lions and Tampa were in the same division, so we would run into each other twice a year. Yeah, I bring that up all the time about about uh, the last time the Lions won the division. Uh, Tampa was uh, was in it. <laughs> and they were still they were still wearing those uh orange uniforms yeah those creamsicle, creamsicle. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> those got off they actually they're making a comeback i think uh they're wearing them against the lions this year are they really yeah i think i that'd saw that fun. Yeah, that'd be kind of fun yeah yeah oh definitely for sure i'm for for as bad as they were i mean it, it's always cool to see throwbacks like that yeah it is. and the logo is better than their current logo. Especially, yeah Especially yeah. those uniforms back in the day of Steve Spurrier and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, all right. So let's get into some, uh, do, uh, some current ball here. So, um, you know, a lot, especially with the Big Ten and SEC the last few weeks, the, you know, nine game versus eight game schedules come up. Uh, I know the Big Ten announced, you know, what, what teams, they didn't say the order or the actual like schedule itself, but what opponents or uh, each Big Ten team's going to play. But the uh, SEC has gotten a lot of heat and, I kind of go back and forth between saying deservingly so and not, um, you know, it depends on what day you ask me about it, but, um, but the SEC got a lot of heat for not going to a nine game schedule um, in uh, 2024 when Texas and Oklahoma arrive. And um, a couple weeks ago when the big 10 released their opponents for each team in 2024, when, uh, when USC and UCLA get in uh, into the league. But uh, what are your thoughts on the big Ten's model, this uh, flex protect plus yeah. uh, model that they have there? Yeah, I think it's all a work in progress. I think they're doing the best they can do because ultimately I think this is all short term because in the long term, I think what's going to happen is we're going to kind of see this, uh, a super conference develop. 
So in the short term, they're, they're doing what they can do. I mean, the Big Ten has gone away from their divisions. So, you know, that's going to be a little different, you know, mix. And what they're trying to do is, and I don't want to sound cynical, but these days the way collegiate, collegiate athletics is not what I was, was brought up on, and it's not, in my opinion, any better. It's, 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 it's going to the, to the money changers in the malls. But they're 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 positioning themselves to to uh, maximize their ability for television and radio contracts, however that may be, and that's ultimately what's down the road. So what they're doing now, I think, um, is is positioning themselves with the idea that this is going to be just kind of a stopgap measure. These things are going to be changed down the road when when the real alignment comes, when maybe there is no more Big Ten or there is no more Pac-12 or there is no more SEC and there's 60 teams in a super conference. Because right now already you got the Big 12, which is, does the Big 12 exist? The Big East doesn't hardly exist anymore other than basketball. Where does Notre Dame fit in? Okay. There's, there's so much that's up there in the air uh, that hasn't landed yet. I think that's what everybody's SEC is trying to do it with their eight-game schedule and not their nine. And the Big Ten is trying to do it. They're all up there in the air knowing that in two years or three years, they may be changing again. And it may that change may be forced on them by who's in their conference or or what the super conference thing actually does. So I, I I just think we're in the midst of a complete change. And every year we're gonna have this discussion. What did you think of the Big Ten's deal? I mean, next year we could do this and say, hey, what do you think of the SEC doing a schedule for 26? Mm-hmm. You know, or or what do you think of this conference alignment or what the Big 12 did? Or where did Oregon and Stanford go? Are they in the Big 12 anymore? Oh, no, they got a big, you know, where's Arizona, Arizona State? You know, it's like, who knows anymore? So I think it's it's just everybody's now jockeying for position, and they're kind of in a holding pattern, trying to make it the best they can make it from a monetary standpoint for their own networks and for their network partners, TV partners, so that they can maximize their income until it all kind of floats down into a complete and total package of teams and universities and who's playing who and when the national championship 12 team playoff or whatever is decided, this is where they're going to come from. You guys may have different ideas or different thoughts and think that I'm all off base, but that's where I, I see it going. I just, I don't see anybody making any really, you know, concrete decisions for 10 years down the road. Like we used to see schedules made 10 years down the road. That's not going to happen anymore because 10 years down the road, that guy may not be playing. Yeah. So that's, I think everybody's kind of up here waiting for everything to kind of fall into place. Uh, In the meantime, they're trying to make the best what they can of their opportunities to maximize the income for their networks, their, their conference affiliates, their universities, and, and their network partner, network TV partners. And I think a lot of it's going to make, I think, make a difference too. It'll be interesting to see with the SEC doing eight and then like pretty much everyone else doing nine. 
and when in 2024, when the uh, college football playoff does go to 12 teams, like what, what does a committee decide on? Like what, what are going to be the factors is they, you know, as right. you know, it's been talked about a lot. It, it's not, it's not always the same formula. I mean, they talk about it being the same formula, but it, it's not ever the same. I mean, there's human error, there's human judgment and, in, in right, I agree with you about that whole thing because yeah. it could be very well, the sec going to the A. They're thinking, okay, maybe we can get three teams in the final four. Mm-hmm. No, instead of that's, that's kind of the from everything that I've heard from um you know a bunch of like SECs like talking heads like that's kind of the expectations that the SEC is going to get three teams in and then and I think that's why teams. they that's why they didn't go to the extra conference game because that would have put a, maybe that third team in jeopardy. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And and yeah. and the Big Ten probably isn't thinking like that because the Big Ten's got a huge TV contract with three networks. So yeah. they're a little they they've got they've got their own little guys they gotta keep happy. So that's probably why they did because they want quality games. I mean, they're doing I mean, they're doing Friday night games. Remember, we this is what makes me mad. Because mm-hmm. college football shouldn't be played on Friday nights. That's high school football. And all Absolutely. across this country, you don't need that. And what is Fox doing now? Big Friday night football. I'm sorry. Yeah. They said they weren't gonna do it. Who believes that? Because here they are doing it. <laughs> And they're taking Friday nights away from the kids. And the kids, and I'm not saying moms and dads will always go to their kids' games, but yeah. that's that to me is 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 not that not great for the greatest feeder system in the world, which is these high school kids playing on Friday nights that that ultimately make their way to these uh, collegiate teams and, and programs. So, you know, but the Big Ten's keeping their guys happy. SEC mm-hmm. keep their guys happy, and at some point. It'll all come down and we'll figure it out or they'll figure it out. Yeah. They'll fi- <laughs> um, so, okay, I'll just, so I do, I do have something that I do want to bring up. I think a big reason the sec, maybe not a big reason, but at least part of the conversation for not going to nine games is since the playoff was started, there's only one team that's played a nine game conference schedule. That's won it. And that was 2014 Ohio state. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and, and you know what? From the SEC perspective, they're trying to protect their conference and make it work for them as best they can. If they look at the numbers, you got to say to the SEC, go ahead. Yeah, we get it. You know, I mean, they're, they're trying to do the best thing they can do for the make, make it the, the best possible situation for the SEC to get that guy into a national championship. So for them, that eight-game schedule makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, I think even like in, in a lot of SEC teams uh, play a power five uh, opponent outside of the you know SEC schedule as well. Like Georgia does Georgia Tech, Florida plays Florida State um, and so on. So, I mean, that's kind of another argument there, too, is that they do most. I shouldn't say most, but a good amount of SEC teams play nine power five games already. So there's you know that there's that little wrinkle as well. And, and those are those traditional in-state rivalries and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so it's like if you're not in the same conference like Florida, Florida State. You know that that works real well for them. Uh, the one I think is that the wild cards Notre Dame somewhere yeah. down the road. Uh, it's got to be soon, right? I would think so. I mean, they've they've turned down the Big Ten a couple of times already uh, because they every have sport but football now is in the ACC, right? Well, but they've, seen, they've yeah, but they've had their cake and eat it too for so yeah. long, and at some point. Somebody's going to say to them, you aren't the big kid on the block anymore. 
and and you better you better show up with your hat in hand or you're gonna wind up like Syracuse. Yeah. Complete afterthought, really. Yep. So anyway, but that's like I said, I we're we're just we're just in the beginning of this uh musical chairs dance. Mm-hmm. All right, so I uh, just got a, a couple uh, questions left, and we'll you know, I'll try to try to wrap it up pretty soon here. So we've kind of gone on for a little while, but uh, it's been awesome so far. Um, but after uh, after the 20, 2024 Big Ten schedule was announced, our opponents were announced. Um, I read somewhere I can't remember where it is, or else I would give them the credit. But I read that UCLA is going to end up traveling more than twenty four thousand miles um, in that season, which is I think more than all but maybe like a couple NFL teams. And, th- and that's with them going to like Germany and the UK and all that. But uh, now that, I mean, that might be a little bit misleading because UCLA is also going to Hawaii, going to Hawaii that year. Yeah. But, um, but if you just count like big 10 travel or big 10 conference games, USC and UCLA are going to go uh, travel twice as much as the third most team, which is Nebraska. I think uh, UCLA big 10 wise is traveling like 16,000 miles. Nebraska is only doing seven. So my question is, do you think the California Big Ten teams are going to regret joining the conference uh, besides for the money aspect of it? Because obviously that's a big thing. But are they going to regret selling their soul for money for just like the quality of life for their student athlete and just the, the chances of actually being competitive and not even just football, but like, you know, softball and things like that, that they really have to go, you know, out of their way to, you know, play like conference games? That's the best the question you're going to Great question, but it, you answered it kind of. A, uh, did they sell their soul for the money? I think they probably uh, are going to say, "Yeah, we we we're worth we're glad to do it because we made the, all this money uh, because they've already done it." So, yeah, the money's going to make it work for them. But yeah, again, I go back to the deal about. This. I don't. I hate to be cynical and all that. I forgive me, okay, guys. But uh, I love cynicism. I'm all for it. Uh, <laughs> And, and because I love collegiate athletics, but if you think that they're doing this, if any of these decisions are made in the best interest, some of these travel decisions of the student athlete, you're kidding yourself. Oh yeah, I, I they're doing. I mean, I I I hope in my heart that that ninety percent of the decisions made by athletic departments are the best interest of the student athlete. I really do, because that that that's the way it should be, but but. You have gone ahead and talked about all this travel. Is that in the best interest of those kids? Or do they get to study? I mean, I think what's the deal with them? I, I, I just, yeah, but it, but again, it goes back to the money. And so that's where my cynicism, I think, gets in the way of, of my heart is that, yeah, they've sold out and it's about the money and, it, and, and it's going to be a couple of years where they're going to have that deal. And I think they're going to enjoy it. And the kids will say, this is great. Uh, traveling across the country. I mean, UCLA, USC traveling to Penn state to play is like coast to coast. It's like yeah, saying yeah. Playing the New York giants. Yeah. I think UCLA has to go to Rutgers. I th- it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's UCLA or USC. Yeah, it's coast to coast. And, and yeah. it's great for the big 10 intersectional mm-hmm. rivalries, uh, People will fill up Rutgers. A good, if they go to Rutgers, that probably be one of the two games they sell out. 
Right. You know, just so pe people in the East will come out and see the uniforms. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they yeah. do that for Michigan. They come out and see the uniforms mm -hmm. uh, at Ohio State. But, but again, UCLA has to pay the price. Imagine if they play a 3 p.m. game at, uh, in, in Piscataway, New Jersey. They'll be done at 6, 7, 8 o'clock. They won't leave until 9 o'clock at night. And, that, and they won't get home until midnight, West Coast time, which would be 3 a.m., you know, basically their body clock time. It's, you know, it, and then they got Sunday to recover and go to class Monday. Is that in the best interest of the student-athlete? I mean, class aside, just the health aspect of losing so much sleep and week after week trying to get your body gone back from jet lag. I mean, like I said, class 100% aside, it's not – you can't expect those athletes to perform at their best week after week if they're traveling coast to coast twice couldn't twice agree. a week. Couldn't agree more. And but that's but that's what they're asking them to do at UCLA and USC, and it's it's for a pretty penny paycheck. And nowadays you wonder, okay, because of NIL, some of these kids are actually getting paid, so they become quote unquote professional type athletes. So maybe it's not such a bad deal because they're getting paid for it. So are they? Are have we crossed the line that they are no longer amateur athletes? And are if we, we haven't crossed it? We're straddling it. Yeah, <laughs> we're. I'll tell you what. We're 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 kicking sand all over it because <laughs> yeah. it's 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 one of those things where we we say or the NCAA or whoever has always said, or the words were, we don't want to have this become a pay-for-play type of deal. I'm sure you've heard it. Yeah. What the hell is I've it? I've been lied to before. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, what, what what do you think it is? Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what it is. And yet, you, it's like it's like listening to some of the politicians in Washington. You know, the government's here to help you. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that if, if, you, if, if you want to say, we don't want to make this a pay-for-play, well, you already have. It already is. And, and it and, was to a certain extent. I was about to say it has been. It's, it's now just above table. Well, it's above yeah. the table, but it's also one of those things where, okay, we are now uh, we're a semi-pro type outfit. Why then are they playing for the University of Georgia? Yeah. Or the University of Michigan? Mm. Or the Ohio State University. If I'm if, if you want to take it the next step, if I'm the university, what am I going to say? Wait a minute, everybody, you guys are not making this money. Maybe you ought to pay me to play under my banner. That I'm sure of asking to come in the next few years. I think I can't remember what state it was. I thought I kind of heard it in passing that I, I want to say it was California had passed uh, some legislation about. Um, uh, either allowing or allowing like a student athletes to collectively bargain to become a school employee. Like, yeah. I, I saw that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, the th the, and, but the thing is, this is where we go, where it's the wild, wild west out there and there are no rules and you just don't know where it's going to go. But at some point, if we ever do lose the educational component of, of, of this, of collegiate football, basketball too, where kids ultimately are going to school and matriculating toward a collegiate degree. 
in, edu in ed their education. And they're really just there to play football. You talk about we're straddling the line. Well, what now uh, is the impetus for the great player to even go to class? Yeah. The, the, the guy that is on a scholarship, he's getting 500 bucks a month or whatever that need, you know, that, that won't go on to play at the NFL level or the USFL level or won't be a professional athlete. That kid needs that degree and that's good for them. But are, are we a, a team of, of 70% of them and 30% of the others that aren't matriculating toward a degree? I don't know. And that's the one thing I think that we all have to keep focus on is the educational component of a university and a team that it is fielding have all been for time eternity, a student athlete. Mm. And let's hope that they continue to be because that's where all of us have our heartstrings because we all have a UGA in our heart that they play for the great old Bulldogs, that they play for the Wolverines, they play for Brutus the Buckeye, they play for the Crimson Tide, and they're getting their degree from Alabama, and their students, they go to class, and an extracurricular activity. Maybe that's a Pollyanna dinosaur way of looking at it today, but I hope that we never lose the educational component of collegiate athletics so that students still play the game. Real mm -hmm. students play the yeah. game. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Um, all right. Unless so, uh, Barrett, then you weren't there to play school. No, well, that, was Cardell, that was Cardell Jones, wasn't it? Cardell, Cardell Jones, not there to play school. Yeah, yeah. That's. <laughs> See that, and that's those are things that worry me. You know that, <laughs> that that you know that that's some of the attitude that they're not there to play school. Well, mm -hmm. yeah, well, I, uh. yeah, not not to not to poo poo Stetson Bennett as well. I mean, we've done that a little bit um, already, but I mean, he he was in college for six or seven years, and and from our understanding is that he did not get his undergraduate degree all that time that he was at UGA or, you know, and that, and that you know, and that's sad. And it, yeah. I don't know who's to blame for that. Really. Stetson probably because it's, it's his responsibility to kind of do, he had the opportunity clearly yeah. it was that important to get it or the school for not holding his feet to the fire to get that degree, to make him, to force him to go to class and get some meaningful degree. Cause you know, he's going to be maybe out of whatever in five years, and, and he's going to be looking for a job at, at the age of 29 or 30. Mm. Doing what? Selling cars? And he could be doing something else and using his degree for that. Not that selling cars isn't a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But oh, he, uh, could, he could definitely make a living selling cars in, uh, in South Georgia. Oh, yeah. Sure. No, I'm not saying it's a good it, it, it could be a wonderful <laughs> career. But it might not be the career he actually could have created for himself had he used the opportunity that he had while he was at Athens to get a degree from a great educational institution. He had enough time to almost get two. Yeah. <laughs> he could have been a double thought. He could have got a master's. You're right. Yeah. He could have got undergrad <laughs> and master's. 
Um, all right. So uh, last uh, last two questions here. Um, what uh, what's Michigan's biggest weakness going into 2023? And uh, or what thing do you think would be the, the thing that would actually keep them from getting back to the playoff for the third year in a row? Well, it's, it's so hard to get, you know, you've got to be unbeaten. You, you can't almost lose the game. If you do, if you do, you got to lose it early. You know, it's like not, the way, the way it's gone in the past, if you look at the way it's gone in the past, uh, if you lose one late, other than if you're a high state. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and depending about who's fifth and sixth, uh, see, I thought USC would have been a, a good one to get in there, but they, but anyway, uh, so what's Michigan's problem? I, I think it's themselves is the biggest uh, thing. They've, they're a very talented football team, but they've got to play at Penn State and at Michigan State. Now, Michigan State might not have much, but it's a rival game. And you remember last year, the event that took place in the tunnel? Mm-hmm. They're going oh, yeah. to use that as, as, as the Armageddon of their program and, and Mel Tucker's. So that's going to be a gigantic game in East Lansing. Mm-hmm. And God knows, it, it, you know, guys both know college football well enough to know anything in it. We almost got beat by Illinois a year ago. The week yep. Ohio State. And, 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 and that could have taken us right out of the playoff. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the things that I think are important. I think, they got to go to Nebraska, too, which worries me a little bit because Nebraska's got the new coaching rule. And I think he's, they, they, that's going to be their first, Nebraska's first, quote-unquote, real nationally important kind of game that would get them off of the schneid and take the smell of the David Frost era away from, uh, you know, away from them. So I think those are the stumbling blocks. And then, you you know, you got to beat Ohio State. Yeah. So, but talent-wise, I mean, they're there. And, you know, again, knock on wood, you don't want J.J. McCarthy to get hurt. Yes, yes. I'll, I will physically knock on wood for you there. Thank you. I was going to hit the old head here. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so uh, last question here. So it's only the middle of June, but – if you had a pick right now, what four teams do you see making the college football playoff? Georgia. I think Smart's got a production line down there. He's just – he's churning them out. Uh, Alabama's in the mix. I think anybody from the Pac-12 is going to – anything close. I think Michigan's got a shot. I really do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always one outlier. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think Notre Dame's that that team. Clemson might come back. I mean, they they're not. I don't think going to have a great difficult schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they, you know, that was when he's a pretty smart guy. And I think he he knows what's going on. And that Clemson could be that. You know, you usually you could just say. Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And, and you'd be 75% right. You'd be more right. right than you'd be more right than a weatherman usually. So, <laughs> so yeah. uh, but I would say Michigan's in the mix in Ohio State. Whoever comes out of the Ohio State, whoever comes out of the Big Ten is one of them. 
Mm-hmm. Georgia, Alabama is a possibility. Those two teams could both make it. There could be a third, as you guys were talking about the eighth game. You, you might have somebody go in there with one early loss, but with big wins over some other teams that give them a great resume at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then I think you got to look at, at, at Clemson. Florida State's supposed to be pretty good this year, too. Mm-hmm. Everybody says that. But uh, I don't know. And, the problem. and then last one, <laughs> I was I was on a Texas A&M with their greatest recruiting class in the history of recruiting classes two years ago, which fell on their ass a year ago. <laughs> uh, are they going to show up? And if they do, will the voters give uh, Fisher and that group that 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 last spot if they if they go unbeaten? It would um, certainly be interesting. I I'm looking. Those are to six it. or seven. Those are the six or yeah. seven that I would put in the mix into the final four. And like you said too, like there's always one outlier that you don't see coming. I mean TCU. I mean who would have thought TCU that they exactly exactly came out last year. And honestly, they shouldn't have beat Michigan last year either. But and we saw what happened in the national championship as well. But well, I I was yeah. I, I that's don't get me started on officiating. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I'll, I'm I'm there with you. <laughs> I, 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 I am so mad about the uh, the um, replay booth and, and guys taking over the game from the replay booth when when you it's the the and I've said this a hundred times as a broadcaster. The rule is it's indisputable video evidence. And if you got five guys sitting in a room and one guy says it was different, that's disputable. It's got to stand as the referee called it. Hmm. I mean, like a jury. Yeah. When, when, when Michigan threw that touchdown pass, I'm not saying Michigan wins the game on, you know, against TCU, but they, they got a touchdown called back. And then everybody says to me, Oh, well, they could. They fumbled on the next play from the one yard line. Eh, that's no good. Eh, that, that, that screwed it up. Right. I said, wait a minute. That play should have never been run. Right. So, why in the world, you know, don't give me that excuse. That play should have never been run because it was a touchdown. We should have been kicking an extra point. But in the meantime, that guy in the booth that made that call, I mean, what's he doing? What's he thinking? That was even the guy. I, and this is again goes right to the point. The guy on TV was it Clat, the Fox guy? Was he? Yeah. With Gus? Was it Gus and, and Joel on that channel? Uh, it was an ESPN uh, game. Oh yeah. So was it uh, Tessator? Was it Tessator? I, I think it was because um, who was the Kurt Herb Street obviously the, called the Ohio State game? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> but anyway. But 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 it, 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 he was a, he said that's a touchdown. So therefore, that's by definition a disputable call, a disputable view. So right then it tells you it should go to the call on the field, which is touchdown. But the guy doesn't. I I just that one. Those kinds of things have to get stopped in college football or uh, pro football too. Pro football yeah. is just as bad. But anyway, yeah. that's that. That's my moment to to to, to complain <laughs> and rant. So I apologize, guys. Oh no, no I was. We love that. complaining about referees. It's one of our yeah. favorite things to do. Yeah, well, that, I mean, I, I did that. So I mean, luckily the the Georgia and Ohio State game kicked off right after that because I was 
I was livid <laughs> after that uh, after the TCU and Michigan game ended. I well, was the too. first the first fifty nine minutes of the Georgia Ohio State game didn't give you anything to calm down about. No, that's no. True. I, <laughs> I, I was scared to look at my resting heart rate for you know what seven hours on on New Year's Eve. That that, that was, <laughs> was you're right about that. Yeah, that that was yeah it was yeah it was all but, crazy. But anyway, yeah. yes. it is what it um, is. It's history now. Yeah, yeah. There we go, and that's a perfect uh, perfect segue. So, uh, Jim, we appreciate you coming on. Um, if you want to uh, plug your uh, audio book one more time, I pre I really appreciate it. It's called Voices of Michigan Stadium. If anybody out there is interested. Go to jimbrandstatter.com, and right on the homepage, there's a way to click to the audiobook. It's also out in paperback, but the audiobook is the better version because you can actually hear the voices of these guys uh, do it. It's also available at Amazon, and there is a way where you can do a one-click buy. It says it costs zero, but that's if you get a three-month uh, uh, subscription to uh, Audible. So oh, you don't want to do that because then you get charged like 15 bucks a month after three months, but you can buy it one time on a one click buy. And then you download it to your device, whether it's iPad, iPhone, whatever. And then you listen to it and uh, get an opportunity to learn about the history of Michigan football from the players that actually played the game. And I mean, when you hear Forrest Evashevsky say Tom Harmon was the greatest football player of the century. That's a lot, man. That's yeah. that's that's the that's from 1900 to 1999. That's pretty good. So yeah. those are the kinds of things you get. JimBrandStatter.com, and click on uh, buy the audiobook now. And uh, love your feedback too. Give me a review if you like it. Awesome. If you yeah, don't like it, if you don't like it, uh, go somewhere and uh, have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jim. Well, we appreciate you having uh, we appreciate you having you on. Um, are you coming on for us? And um, hopefully, we'll be able to talk again uh, before you know Michigan and Georgia play in uh, playoff or the national championship. Like I'd be I, kind uh, of fun. I, I, hey, if we get that far, I would be uh, thrilled to, to come on with you guys and and uh, sing a few fight songs that make everybody mad. <laughs> if it comes out that way, you will be our first email. Promise you that. Are you sure? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, well, I, I appreciate it. I hope it worked out for you guys. Yes, we, we very much appreciate it. Okay, good, yeah, good. A lot of fun. We appreciate it. Good deal. Thanks, guys. Yes, sir. Have a good night. You. you too. Thank you. We just want to say thank you to Jim one more time before we close it out here. But as always, Instagram, nothing.finder.pod. Facebook and YouTube, search us there. The Twitter is at FinerPod, nothingfinerpod.com. We do have some stories and stuff coming your way there. And always remember, there is nothing finer in the land than a drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan. Go blue. Third and a mile. Duggan from the two will throw it all the way across the field. It's picked up by Bullardy. Bullard got it again. And Bennett to throw lobs it to the right corner there's McConkey. he got on his donkey and made a sliding catch in the right corner touchdown